Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts. We celebrate a milestone by traveling back in time. I'm Tom Shine, and welcome to a special edition of The Range. Support for The Range comes from McCowan Gordon Construction, Fidelity Bank, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today marks the 200th episode of The Range. You might remember that for our 100th show, we got some advice from Wichitans who were celebrating their 100th birthday. Just be good, be kind, make the most out of your life. We were unable to find any 200-year-olds for this show, so we decided to turn back the clock instead. What did Kansas look like 200 years ago, and who lived here? To answer the first question, we visited the tall grass prairie. In 1823, the grasslands would have covered much of the state, which was then part of the Missouri Territory. The prairie has gotten smaller, but Daniel Caudill says what remains provides a window into our past. To get an idea of what much of Kansas looked like in 1823, you need only to take a walk through the Kanza Prairie Biological Station near Manhattan. This site is burned every two years, and this site historically has been burned every 20 years. That's John Blair. He's a biology professor at Kansas State University and director of the Biological Station, which has more than 8,600 acres of land. The station hosts a herd of about 200 bison who graze the area, and their activity, combined with controlled burning, helps researchers better understand the history of the tall grass prairie and how to preserve it. We can look at how bison grazing and fire interact to influence the, the, the heterogeneity of the landscape and the, and the plant communities that occur there. Before white settlers arrived in Kansas in 1827, the tall grass prairie covered 170 million acres of what's now called North America, going all the way to modern-day Indiana, Ohio, and even Canada. But the tall grass started to decline due to settlements and, primarily, agriculture. And after nearly two centuries of farming in the region, the tall grass prairie today is only about 4% of its peak size, with the bulk of it right here in eastern Kansas. So why was Kansas's piece of the tall grass prairie saved from the plow? Because the Flint Hills were too rocky and had too much topographic relief to effectively be plowed. Along with the once massive swaths of tall grass came an abundance of grassland birds, like the now endangered prairie chicken. There would have also been a much higher number of herd animals roaming the state in the 1820s, like elk and bison. And bison work almost like nature's ecologists, creating depressions in the ground called bison wallows that hold water and are home to diverse wildlife. So these wallows in the springtime become these temporary springtime ephemeral ponds, which is good for amphibians and aquatic insects. Those herd animals attracted predators, many of which we no longer see in Kansas today. That includes timber wolves, black bears, and even grizzly bears. One of the biggest changes to Kansas's landscape over the last 200 years is the increased presence of trees and shrubs, or what Blair calls woody vegetation. Historically, fires were an integral part of why the tall grass prairie was tall grass prairie and not forest. And it, it burned frequently, 
from both natural causes, lightning-induced fires, and because the indigenous people, the Native Americans here, used fire extensively. Today, the practice of burning the tall grass is still employed at the Kanza Prairie Biological Station and elsewhere in the Flint Hills. It's all about keeping the grass healthy and making sure that woody vegetation doesn't creep in and take over the state's last remaining sea of tall grass, an iconic piece of Kansas history. Conserving that part of our American heritage, I think, is important for social and cultural reasons, but also because um, it harbors a lot of biodiversity that we don't find in other ecosystems. For The Range, I'm Daniel Caudill. In 1823, four decades before Jesse Chisholm established his trading post in what is now Wichita, Native American tribes hunted buffalo and made their homes throughout south-central Kansas. Suzanne Perez looks at the area's original inhabitants and why learning their history is crucial to understanding Wichita's past. To know what Wichita was like in 1823, you have to consider three great tribes of the Great Plains. The Lakota to the north. Comanche to the south, and out east, the sprawling, powerful Osage Nation. Where we're sitting now is officially part of a very large Osage reservation. Wichita State University professor Robert Owens specializes in early American history and Indian affairs. He says the history of this region is one of colonialism and empire building, but it all began with horses. Bison and horses want the same things. They want lots of grass and they want good water. Uh, and so you would have had that here. Conventional wisdom is that horses were introduced to Native American tribes by European explorers, particularly the Spanish. The animals became a prized possession for buffalo hunting plains Indians. And the Wichita area, with its lush prairies and flowing river, was a great place to hunt. By that point, the, these big groups, they're not just hunting to feed themselves. They're, they are also commercial hunters for uh, trading the buffalo meat or the buffalo hides or what have you. Owens says native tribes lived and traded peacefully alongside explorers and early pioneers at first. But by the early 1800s, tribes were moved west to make room for more settlers. But when you have lots and lots of people wanting to come in and fence off areas and control land in sort of perpetuity, that's a different ballgame, right? Uh, and that really disrupts uh, their economies and their cultures. Indigenous populations, including the Wichita, lost much of their land to displace tribes from other areas. Tribes moved into Kansas and Missouri with the promise of permanent homes, only to be uprooted again into what would become Oklahoma. Now, if we're looking at 200 years ago, by 1823, there's tr almost sort of constant change. Dal Dombo directs the Native American Indian Education Program for Wichita schools. He gives presentations throughout the school year, but especially during Native American Heritage Month in November. History is told by the side of the winners. So our story has never been properly told or thoroughly told. Dombo is a descendant of the Kiowa, Ponca, and Quapaw tribes. He didn't learn much about Native American history at school. But when other kids were going to Disney World or the beach, his family made other plans. Growing up, I was what, uh, what we kind of affectionately call a powwow kid. Our vacations consisted of visiting relatives down on the, on the reservations down in Oklahoma. And I got to speak with a lot of my grandparents, and, you know, they would teach us our history. They would teach us our culture. These days, teaching that culture to Wichita students is his primary goal. Because Native history is American history, and it's part of Wichita's legacy. We can't go back 
and undo what was done. We have to move forward and we have to learn from it. For The Range, I'm Suzanne Perez. And one last thing. The very first story on the very first edition of The Range was about the new Riverfront Master Plan. Nearly four years later, The Range is still chugging along. Riverfront development? Eh, not so much. The first show also included the debut of En Route, where Beth Goulet talked with average folks who ride the bus. People whose voices you would never hear on the radio, if not for the range. Beth has passed responsibility for En Route to colleague Hugo Fan. It's one of many changes the range has experienced since we started in 2020. But one thing hasn't changed. Our weekly commitment to share with you stories about where we live and the people who live here. Here's to the next 200. Thanks for joining us on The Range. Our producers for this week's show are Carly Cooper, Jonathan Huber, Beth Collet, and Lou Ann Stevens. Our digital producer is Hugo Fan, and Torn Anderson composed our theme music. The executive producer of The Range is Fletcher Powell. I'm Tom Shine, and this is KMUW, NPR for Wichita. <laughs> ¶¶